Fred Tokars received the call at his Montgomery, Alabama hotel. Your wife has been shot. She was found in her car just off the road in their suburban neighborhood. Her boys were in the vehicle with her, but they escaped unharmed. Fred was frantic. His wife of six years was dead. And not how he'd planned. She was supposed to die in the house, a staged robbery gone wrong. With this change of plans, the police would definitely suspect foul play. He paced around the room, eyes bleary, watching his carefully crafted web of lies unravel. This was not how this was supposed to go or how it was supposed to feel, but he would lie, evade, and misdirect the same as he'd always done. And if all else failed, there was Eddie Lawrence to pin it on. Eddie had the motive for retaliation with all the money he owed Fred. Eddie was a low-life criminal. His word wouldn't stand up against a prominent judge. And Eddie had actually pulled the trigger. Fred poured back a drink or two, or three, and headed home to Atlanta, clinging desperately to what remained of his plan. He'd paid $20,000 to have his wife killed, all to protect himself from going to prison. And Fred Tokars was very careful about making sure his investments paid off. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations on the ParCast Network. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our second episode on Sarah Tokars, who was shot in the head on the orders of her own husband, Atlanta lawyer and money laundering expert, Fred Tokars. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. November 30th, 1992. A babbling, distraught Fred Tokars stood in the driveway of his Cobb County home, embraced in the arms of his friend Leah Sears, a state Supreme Court justice. Local news was there to capture the moment. Inside, Detective Pat Banks paced through the house. He couldn't figure out why the alarm system was off and the back door was unlocked in the house of a criminal defense lawyer. Fred should surely be careful about the safety of his family. And he was puzzled by the obvious but flimsy evidence of robbery. Sarah's jewelry boxes were out and had been rummaged through, but easily pawned electronics like cassette players remained untouched. This was no robbery, he and the Cobb County Police quickly determined. It was a planned attack. When Fred was taken down to the station on that first morning after the murder, his interview with the police was incoherent. He babbled about this and that, he sniffled and he hyperventilated, but he didn't provide any useful information. Did Sarah leave out her jewelry box? Was anything missing from the house? His resounding refrain was, I don't remember, I'm not sure. 
He gave those answers in the presence of a criminal defense lawyer, Howard Weintraub, who he called up as soon as he got back into Atlanta, before the police even asked him to come in for questioning. Lawyering up is not most men's instinctual response to finding out their wife has been murdered. Now, perhaps it was Fred's instinct because he was a criminal defense lawyer himself. He would have known that even innocent people are better off with lawyers. And Weintraub was a colleague of Fred's. His presence could also be explained as a friend who'd come for emotional support. But to the police, it was a hint of just how on guard Fred was from the instant he heard that Sarah was killed. And simultaneously, how drunk. As that first day turned into the first week, Fred wallowed around the hotel he checked into with his boys and his wife's family while the police surveyed the house. He was drinking heavily, panicking, and parlaying that panic into a masterful performance of grief. He used this apparent grief as an excuse to avoid talking with the police, pushing off any further interviews with them until after the funeral, and then to a few days after that. But on Friday, December 4th, five days after the murder, Ralph Perdomo, the private detective Sarah had once hired to confirm Fred's affair, sent a batch of files to the police. The files included documentation of Fred's affair and even more saliently, the words Sarah had impressed upon Perdomo as they parted ways. If anything happens to me, promise to take my files to the police. The police department, in an effort to encourage Fred to speak with them, leaked those jarringly prescient words to the local press, along with the news of Fred's affair. By the next morning, the Atlanta media was broadcasting the news. Local journalists had been covering Sarah's murder incessantly all week. Atlanta was fascinated by this story of urban violence and crime seeping out into its suburbs. The racial and class dynamics initially painted a vivid, if inaccurate, picture for the media. A wealthy white housewife had been robbed, carjacked, and murdered by two black hoodlums from inner-city Atlanta. Throwing Fred's affair into the mix did cast some doubt on this racist interpretation of events, but if the innocent housewife's philandering husband was the one who wanted her out of the way, well, the public was only more fascinated. The press coverage and the new information it was revealing shook Sarah's family to attention. The Ambruscos trooped down to the police station as soon as Perdomo's files went public on Saturday, December 5th. The family was starting to get suspicious of Fred. His histrionic seemed oddly focused on his own troubles rather than on Sarah. That, paired with his lack of enthusiasm for helping the police and the evidence of his affair, painted an unnerving, if not damning, portrait. Added to that were the suspicions of Sarah's cousin, Mary Rose Taylor, about Fred's less-than-legal professional practices. It was Mary who, a few years earlier, had urged Sarah to copy the banking documents in Fred's safe and pass them on to the police. The police were starting to get suspicious, too. Those suspicions were not allayed when Fred finally arrived at the police station on December 6th with not one, but two defense lawyers in tow. Weintraub had been replaced by Jerry Fralick and Frank Petrella, who specialized in federal criminal defense law. Fred was thinking ahead, wary of the federal racketeering cases hovering just outside his door. 
The detectives didn't understand Fred's choice of lawyers, since federal law enforcement wasn't yet involved in the murder investigation. The local police were only seeing a tiny corner of the full picture. But even that corner was damning. Fred's interview, which was as winding and evasive as the first, did reveal some crucial information to the police. First, Fred wasn't interested in providing them with the kind of concrete biographical facts that might help them find their killer. Second, Fred had, he admitted, $1.75 million worth of life insurance policies taken out on his wife. That's worth over $3 million today, accounting for inflation. His excuse for the astronomical sum was that he had the same policies out on his own life. But the police weren't convinced that the insurance was the innocent failsafe Fred claimed it was. If Fred wasn't a suspect before that interview, he was after. A far more powerful motive than the affair was the money. Plenty of men have affairs, but few men have affairs and also take out millions of dollars of life insurance on their wives. Fred's plan was falling apart, and quickly. Meanwhile, he still hadn't paid Eddie Lawrence, whom he'd hired to execute the murderous plot. In turn, Eddie hadn't paid Curtis Rower, whom he'd subcontracted to do the job. The police were already looking for Curtis, the man six-year-old Ricky Tokars had described to the police as a slender black man with a pirate gun. Eddie was panicking. He hadn't heard anything from Fred, and he didn't have the $5,000 he'd promised his fugitive gunman. Watching the news, Eddie was getting increasingly anxious. Eddie had called Fred on December 1st, two days after the murder, and received a terse response. Did you hear about Sarah's murder? It's a terrible tragedy, isn't it? Eddie haltingly agreed, and Fred said, Well, I'm going to Florida. I'll see you in about three months. The entire call lasted 70 seconds. After that call, Eddie was only more confused than before. Fred hadn't mentioned anything about the money or about what he should do next. So he waited, But as he waited, the consequences of his decisions started coming home to roost. Fred, when he'd outlined his plan to Eddie, had expected the con man to personally pull the trigger on Sarah. Eddie, reluctant to kill, but eager for the $20,000, had concocted his own plan by hiring Curtis to do the job for a fraction of Fred's money. But it had taken a few conversations with potential hitmen before he found Curtis. Those conversations, through whispered tips and tapped phone lines, had reached police, and the would-be hitmen were talking. And Curtis Rower's low rate came with a correspondingly low level of discretion. He had rushed home from the murder and given a detailed account of exactly what happened to his sister and her boyfriend. The boyfriend told his mother, who told her boyfriend, who was a sheriff's deputy. Curtis and Eddie didn't have long especially after the Ambruscos finally hassled Fred into posting a $25,000 reward for information on Sarah's killer on December 10th. Eddie was hauled in for questioning by the police on Saturday, December 12th. They wanted to know about his business dealings with Fred Tokars, his debt to said Fred Tokars, and his phone calls to that same Mr. Tokars on the days before, of, and after his wife's murder. As if the line of questioning weren't clear enough, 
They asked Eddie whether Fred had ever asked him about finding someone to do a hit on his wife. The police knew exactly what questions to ask, but they weren't getting the answers they wanted. Eddie was playing dumb. Even so, after a second round of questioning on December 16th, they jailed him on old outstanding bad check charges. The police didn't want him skipping town, even if they couldn't prove he'd played a role in Sarah's murder. Yet. Four days later, on December 20th, Fred was brought in for questioning about his relationship with Eddie. He hadn't mentioned his business partner in his first few interviews with the police, even when they'd asked for a list of old clients or associates who might have reason to resent Fred. Eddie's massive debt to Fred certainly put him in that category. But as the police grilled Fred, he pleaded accidental omission. He'd forgotten about Eddie, that was all. He had no intention of hiding his relationship with the man. The police didn't buy it. But for many reasons, it was harder to detain Fred Tokars, a prominent white lawyer and judge with no criminal charges to his name, than Eddie Lawrence, a black man who was known to move in criminal circles. The police had to pursue Eddie first if they wanted evidence on Fred. Curtis Rower was their ticket. Whispers on the Atlanta streets drove the police closer and closer to their man. Curtis was hiding under a bed at his aunt's house when they found him, high and scared out of his mind on December 23rd. He didn't have many cards to play. He'd never met Fred, who Eddie had told him was the man behind the job, the man with the money and power. When he asked his grandma what to tell the police, she said, tell the truth. So he gave it to them. Curtis waived his right to a lawyer and told the police everything they wanted to know, banking on cooperation as his best chance of clemency. Some of Curtis's testimony was suspect, forensic evidence suggested. Specifically, he claimed that he didn't mean to kill Sarah in the end, and that his gun only went off when Eddie struggled with him to grab the weapon. But the blood spatter patterns showed that the car door was shut when the gun went off. Curtis was likely making a small amendment to the story in the hopes of softening his role, making it more palatable. He didn't, in the end, mean to kill. In a way, this was true. Curtis wasn't the one who had wanted Sarah dead. He was just the trigger man. And he didn't hesitate to point the finger at the man who had hired him. When Eddie Lawrence heard Curtis had been taken into custody, he immediately called a lawyer. Up next, we'll explore what happened as the law closed in on the case and the sensational legal circus surrounding Fred, Eddie Lawrence, and Curtis Rower. Now, back to the story. While Curtis Rower and Eddie Lawrence were biding their time in jail, Fred Tokars was skulking down to Florida with his sons and his wife's family. He was running away from Atlanta, the media, and the police, but he couldn't run from the truth. The Cobb County Police reached Fred by phone on December 23, 1992. Nearly a month after Sarah Tokar's murder, two suspects were being held in custody, Eddie Lawrence and Curtis Rower. The case was progressing and the media was keeping up. The next day, Fred read a headline claiming Sarah had been killed because of documents she'd found in Fred's safe that proved he was laundering money. Fred felt panicked. He didn't know where the paper had gotten the information 
or what was going on with the federal investigation into his financial crimes. The controlling, tight-lipped numbers man was losing his grip. Watching it all implode, he too was spiraling, drinking constantly, losing faith in his plan and in himself. And then on Christmas Eve, he locked himself in his motel room and wrote his suicide note. Long and effusively dramatic, its final paragraph stated, quote, the press has made me feel like a suspect. I shouldn't be, end quote. He washed down sedatives with the remnants of his liquor. It was a last-ditch, desperate attempt to control the game. His role in Sarah's death was still unconfirmed. Whatever evidence the police might find, if he died now, he couldn't stand trial or be convicted. He might at least be remembered as an innocent, aggrieved husband. But Fred's suicide attempt, like the plot that preceded it, would fail. It was Sarah's father, John Ambrusco, who saved his life. When Fred wouldn't answer John's calls that night, he followed his intuition and asked Fred's motel to check in on their guest. John may not have known he just saved the life of the man who killed his daughter. But in doing so, he also ensured his daughter's killer would live long enough to be brought to justice. In the months after his suicide attempt on Christmas Eve 1992, tensions mounted between Fred Tokars and his wife's family. The Ambruscos were confused and put off by Fred's strange behavior, and they were increasingly certain that Fred had been involved with Sarah's death. They wanted custody of Fred and Sarah's sons. And they wanted Sarah's life insurance money, which was being held in trust for the boys, far away from Fred's greedy hands. $1.75 million was nothing to scoff at. That could take care of the boys for years in the absence of a mother and perhaps a father. In early February, the Ambruscos found legal representation to set the process for custody in motion. Fred was angry, but he was content to allow his boys to live with the Ambruscos as long as he still got the insurance money. The proceedings dragged on for months without resolution. Meanwhile, back in Atlanta, the courts were moving a little more swiftly. Eddie Lawrence and Curtis Rower were officially indicted for their role in Sarah Tokar's murder. Bad news for Fred, but he breathed a sigh of relief that their indictment didn't come along with an arrest for him. But then, Atlanta Magazine's June 1993 issue was published. It was chock full of interviews with Sarah's family. The article laid out the story the prosecution would soon be telling jurors. The Tokar's marriage was a bad one, haunted by emotional and physical abuse. Sarah wanted a divorce, which could have exposed her husband's finances to examination. Then there was the federal case closing in on a circle of Fred's associates and clients where investigators had been subpoenaing the wives of men on trial. It looked like a pressing motive for Fred to silence his disgruntled wife before she could turn on him. Fred was shocked, both by the article itself and by the fact that the Ambruscos had talked to the writer. The family, it was clear, wasn't going to take his side when push came to shove. The Ambruscos could have the boys, he decided. He'd never spent much time with them anyway, but the insurance money was his. He'd risked too much to give it up without a fight. And if he had to hold out his sons as collateral, he would. On June 15, 1993, 
Fred picked up his boys from their grandparents' house, claiming he was taking them to Disney World. Instead, he ran north to his mother's vacation home in Canada, where he held his sons as he sent countersuit after countersuit to the Ambrusco family. But his bid for the insurance money was a futile final exercise in a long-failed plan. Since Eddie Lawrence's indictment on February 23rd, his defense had been hunting down possible avenues to get their man a decent plea deal. They were in a tricky place. The evidence was stacked against Eddie, but he hadn't confessed yet. If they could discredit the prosecution's case, however damning it seemed, they could increase the value of Eddie's confession and thus their own bargaining power. In July 1993, Hollywood handed them their opportunity. Eddie's lawyers uncovered the information that a prominent television reporter covering the case had signed a movie deal, along with Ralph Perdomo, Sarah's one-time private detective, and other witnesses the reporter had interviewed. The testimony the prosecution was relying on, the defense argued, had a price. Eddie's lawyers ran with that tiny bit of leverage and asked for a plea deal, and not just with the local Cobb County prosecutors. They got the federal prosecutors investigating Fred Togar's associates to the table, too. The feds were already after Eddie for racketeering charges, and they were interested in exactly how Sarah's murder might play into their case. On July 24th, local and federal prosecutions signed a sweetheart deal. Eddie would plead guilty to federal counterfeiting and racketeering charges, including Sarah's murder, and testify against his co-conspirators, including Fred, on all those charges. In exchange, he'd receive the recommendation of a parolable life sentence, which might mean as little as seven years behind bars. The public outrage around the case, after all, wasn't about Eddie, his lawyers pointed out. It was about Fred, the respectable judge and lawyer who'd betrayed his position. The man who had every opportunity to be good, but chose to be bad. And Eddie's testimony gave them exactly what they needed to indict him. By August 1993, Fred was long over the doubt and anxiety that had pushed him to attempt suicide the Christmas before. He was confident that the government didn't have the evidence to arrest him. Wouldn't he have heard about it by now? The rumors about his culpability were out in the open, he knew. But rumors would fade away. It looked for a moment like he was getting off scot-free. He was sure he could finally return to Florida, re-enroll his boys in school for the fall, and focus on getting his insurance money. That delusion was lucky for the prosecution. Canada had laws protecting against extradition for anyone facing possible death sentences, so if Fred had stayed up north, the U.S. would never have been able to arrest him. On August 24, 1993, just a few days after he re-entered the U.S., Fred Tokars was taken into custody by the FBI on federal charges of racketeering and Cobb County charges of murder for hire. It was March 1994 by the time Fred's first trial began. The federal charges were for racketeering, money laundering, and federal crimes associated with Sarah's assassination, including kidnapping and making telephone calls across state lines to arrange a murder. The one charge that wasn't brought to the table in the federal case was the murder for hire charge. That was left for the Cobb County trial, 
where it might garner a death sentence. Local and federal prosecution were in agreement. They were gunning for the harshest sentence possible. With Curtis and Eddie's testimonies and the detailed financial records the federal investigation had laid out, the case was tight. Offshore accounts led to nightclubs and businesses Fred had incorporated and helped run. And Fred, furiously taking notes on his yellow legal pad, surrounded by his defense team, didn't help his own case either. He looked far from heartbroken or helpless. Fred cried like a baby as he read his own suicide note, overwhelmed by how wronged he'd been by the investigators, by how horribly his own life had been ruined. But he didn't cry for Sarah and he didn't stop his defense from brutally attacking the character of nearly every member of his wife's family. The defense's lawyers were parroting Fred's own vitriol against the procession of sweet-looking blondes who took the stand. It was the grieving Ambrusco sisters versus the angry, snarling Fred and his team of attack dog lawyers. Fred's vicious strategy didn't win him any sympathy from the jurors. On Friday, April 8, 1994, after a month of testimony, the jury returned its verdict, guilty. Fred was charged with money laundering and participating in a criminal enterprise that transported and distributed cocaine. He was sentenced to life without parole. There were more sentences to follow at Curtis Rower's trial as well as Fred's Cobb County trial. Both cases hinged on the question of the death penalty. The Ambruscos, heartbroken, furious, and politically conservative, were vocal about their desire to see both men dead. But Curtis's trial ended in a mistrial, and the prosecution eventually accepted a guilty plea, sentencing him to life without parole. Fred's Cobb County trial for Sarah's murder ended in another life sentence, with two jurors blocking the unanimous vote needed for a death sentence. Fred and his compatriots were locked up for their various sentences. Some questions were still up in the air, but jury after jury was convinced that all three of them together planned and enacted Sarah's death. In the face of that surety, the defense for each of the men did an impressive job in keeping them alive. But Fred wasn't ready for his story to end. He'd lost control of his narrative and his reputation, which he'd gone to murderous lengths to protect. In the years after his conviction, he became a star informant, providing investigators with information he gleaned from the prison floor. His testimony helped convict six murderers. He told the prosecutors he gave his testimony in an attempt to show his sons that he was capable of good. Witness protection also helped him disappear into the federal prison system as his name was scrubbed from prison records for his own safety. Fred took over his own story by erasing its ending. But he couldn't erase the scores of articles, TV interviews, and movie deals that were inked before he disappeared. His crime took on a life of its own, becoming a touchstone in the drug wars, the racial tensions, and the questions of America's future that surrounded Fred and Sarah's Cobb County house. Coming up, we'll take a look at the legacy and impact of Sarah Tokar's death and how the world might be different if she had lived. Now, back to the story. On the morning of November 29, 1992, Fred Tokars called his family from Atlanta 
and spoke with Sarah and his young boys, he envisioned the moment when the children would see their mother's body pouring blood when his assassination plan went into effect. He felt the sting of sadness and guilt, or perhaps just anxiety that his plan might go awry. He called Eddie Lawrence and told him, You're off the hook. Let Sarah live. Let's go back even further. Sarah Tokars first asked Fred for a divorce in 1989 when she confirmed he was having an affair. What if he had looked into her sad eyes and said, Yes, you're right. This marriage isn't working. Let's go our separate ways. There was no federal investigation at that point. No fear that Sarah's testimony would topple his house of cards. He could have managed the financial assessments that went along with divorce and kept his illegal work a secret. There's no way to know exactly when or why Fred would have been most likely to turn away from the dark, bloody path he walked down. But if he had, how would the world be different today? If there had been no murder investigation, Fred might have outrun the law for longer, continued incorporating money laundering fronts and helping drug dealers run them. But it's unlikely he would have been able to run forever. The federal investigations that ultimately jailed him were in motion long before his murder of Sarah. Once Fred was in prison, Sarah would have been able to get her divorce and custody easily. Her life would have continued, gotten brighter and happier and better. By 2005, she would have been packing up the first of her boys for college. Today, she might be a grandmother to a few young children. She might have successfully shepherded two young men into adulthood with values like her own. Instead, the boys grew up in a radically non-traditional world. Their father was in prison, their mother dead at his hands. They were in the custody of relatives who loved them, but who could never convince them that they were living, or ever could live, the white picket fence dream. No movie was ever made about the Tokar story, perhaps because of horror at the way Hollywood's participation in the whole debacle had influenced the outcome of Fred, Eddie, and Curtis's trials. The movie studios acted too eagerly in the Tokar's case. But a book over 500 pages long was penned about the affair. TV specials have examined it. Headline after headline announced its progress and, in later years, looked back curiously on the case. But why did the case make such an impact? What exactly was it that grabbed and held the public's attention? The most notable part of Fred and Sarah Tokar's story isn't the murder itself. Fred was an unremarkable figure. Greedy, dependent on alcohol, desperate to control a world that was far larger and stronger than he. The notable thing is what the Tokars family represented for everyone else. After Fred's trial, the New York Times reported, quote, Because of Mr. Tokar's prominence, the gruesome nature of the murders, and the seeminess of the testimony, the trial is considered one of the most sensational in Georgia, end quote. In this case, seeminess denotes that the case involved drugs, murder, depravity, and the fraught urban spaces where that depravity was fostered. In the Tokar's case, that seeminess seeped into suburbia. As another New York Times article explained, quote, 
On the surface, Sarah and Fred's life was the picture of placid suburban perfection, with her activities centered on their son's school and his on a successful legal career, end quote. Sarah became a symbol of motherhood, warmth, and domestic white femininity. With her murder, she came face to face with the violence, drugs, and unadulterated greed of modern urban life. Initially, it seemed to be a simple tale of inner-city crime menacing the polite society on the outskirts of Cobb County, but the trial's conclusion made the conversation all the more troubling. Fred was the crux of the story, the piece that showed exactly how close together those two opposing worlds lived. The scariest suggestion the case made was that the safe, idyllic world Sarah was supposed to represent might not really exist at all. The cultural significance of the case goes deeper than the immediately salient factors that made it so sensational in the media. It's about the context, the ongoing questions of what America looks like. Those questions were reaching one of their recursive boiling points in the late 80s and early 90s, when Sarah was killed. In the midst of the AIDS crisis and the crack epidemic, both conservatives and progressives were on high alert about degrading safety, morality, and family values. President Nixon's war on drugs beginning in 1971 was designed to assuage these fears to, quote unquote, clean up the country. Those new policies gained momentum during Reagan's administration and usually involved jailing black men. Between 1982 and 2002, the number of incarcerated black men grew fivefold. The face of the degradation of American values was black and urban, and the white suburbs were kept out of the equation, at least in the cultural imagination. The Tokars case, of course, jailed a white man as well as two black men on charges that were tied to drugs, violence, and deep immorality. It was the perfect storm to exemplify the alleged attack on America's values. And it revealed that those values weren't any more safe in a white suburb than a black city neighborhood. The case complicated the view of crime as an us-versus-them issue. Within the Tokar's home, the violent criminal and the innocent victim lived under the same roof. Not even Sarah Tokar's, sweet blonde cheerleader that she was, could stay untouched in a world of drugs and crime. Sarah's death itself didn't cause a critical re-examination of what America meant or looked like, but it brought together a number of factors that played into that re-examination. Less than two years after Sarah's death, Bill Clinton's 1994 crime bill went into effect. That bill, like the previous war on drugs, was a response to the fears Sarah's case dredged out into the open. And like the war on drugs, the bill is now notorious for contributing to mass incarceration of black men. While the 1994 bill to liberals and conservatives alike now looks misguided, the anxiety it represents about what America means and who controls that definition is strikingly resonant today. Fred Tokars is now far away from questions about what America will look like when today's children are grown. He will never get parole. He'll never achieve the political success and financial security he placed above his wife's life, his son's futures, and the possibility of domestic happiness. 
his last-ditch effort to testify for prosecutors and show his boys that he's on the side of the law may have allowed him to take ownership over the final lines of his personal story. But it does nothing to rewrite his place in our cultural history. He'll always be remembered as a money launderer, a liar, and an assassin. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. If you're looking for more episodes or other stories of murder and crime, you can find us as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and on Twitter as at ParCast Network. See you next Thursday. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Freddie Beckley and Maggie Admire. Assassinations is written by Nora Battelle and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. 